Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are joined by Tony Fish, CEO of Digital Twenty, AI and Ethics Visiting Lecturer for London School of Economics, and more. It was a whole lot more that comes with that. And so, you know, I would encourage our audience and our listeners to go to LinkedIn and look for Tony. And also look for his articles because he is a prolific writer and he does write a lot. So thank you for joining in our show today, Tony. Thank you very much, Theodora, for having me. I'm, I'm excited to chat. Yes, chats we will. Before we start, though, um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and where would we be able to find some of your writings? Uh, yeah, so what I do is I suppose I go under the sort of terminology of uh, being a pioneer. So I've always been a little bit ahead, trying to um, find places to go where nobody else has gone, uh, which sometimes is a bit of a lonely place um, and sometimes is a bit of a successful place. And it all depends on, on a bit of timing. I've built up and sold five businesses. I've run three venture firms, made about 100 investments, uh, took a sabbatical uh, a year ago, uh, which is why I've been doing lots of writing and thinking. And I publish it mainly on on uh, Medium, so tonyfish.medium.com, and on my LinkedIn, which you'll find, and also a blog which I've been running for about twelve years, uh, called mydigitalfootprint.com. Um, um, and the purpose of it, it really, I kind of like it's therapeutic for myself as I explore my own thinking and try to explain it. So let's talk about some of the businesses that you've been involved in. And, and now that you've you know, talked about investing in so many companies, uh, your investment thesis of the past decade, given the rise of fintech and some of the things that you're really excited about, what sort of aha moments have you had in, in both investing and forming these companies? Uh, so yet uh, 12 years ago, I wrote My Digital Footprint. And the subtitle of that was um, Where Your Privacy Becomes Somebody Else's Business Model. So that formed uh, a, a view to invest into particularly identity, privacy, security uh, based uh, pieces and then into analytics. And that thesis was the book and the book was pretty specific about what we focused on. 2013 uh, raised a fintech fund and focused very, very heavily on the emergence of the fintech um, industry. My aha moment was that um, none of the fintech stuff we were doing was actually growing the fintech market. It was just moving margin from people who had lots of margin to people who had less margin. But the overall business is, is a, as a totality was probably shrinking. So how do you actually get growth back into fintech? Um, which has been a bit of a struggle because I'm still not sure how we're going to do that other than carry on moving margin around because finance is quite finite. Um, but the, the biggest thing I've been focused on, and this is kind of, like, I think what we're going to talk lots about is how do we get better? How do we become better ancestors? So in the decisions we make and the investment philosophies we have, how do we not burn the earth behind us? How do we actually do something which kind of like allows humanity to one, survive and then thrive? So, so when we, we when we look back, sometimes we, we have these regrets or we have these, um, boy, I wish I would have known that then. Uh, what are some of the things that, that you would have done a little bit differently, either in terms of the investment thesis that you developed and what you would have invested earlier? I mean, yeah, everybody knows that they should have invested in GameStop at like four or five cents when it fell. 
Um, but outside of that, you know, if, if you had a way in the crystal ball to go backwards, what would you have done differently in terms of either investing or maybe some of the companies you've been involved in? Um, uh, I suppose a skill I've had to learn over best part of 30 odd years of, of doing this is how to tell if somebody's lying. Um, and I wish I'd managed to learn that skill an awful lot earlier in life. Um, and predominantly because you invest in teams rather than anything else. And, you know, if a team is, is, is very good at pulling the wool over your eyes, it is very, very difficult to know if they're lying. Hence the reason that as a sort of as, as just as a skill set would have been amazing to have a lot earlier in life. Um, I suppose the other piece is, um, some, sometimes you, you, you go with your head and not with your heart. And more often than not, when you go with your head and all the analytics, it kind of like doesn't work out. And there's something else about the investment decisions, which is so often to do with uh, timing. And however you do modeling and however you do investment thesis and everything else, it kind of like never gets the journey. It never gets the timing right, where somehow there's something else intrinsic and it's about what you talk and language, but you can't put it on a piece of paper. And getting timing wrong, yeah, that's, that's where I've gone wrong so many times. I think I, I would say probably all of us have done something like that in that regards. We got the timing round, just like what Brett was saying, with all the craziness that's going on in the market right now. Um, something that you just said when you're talking about 12 years ago when you were writing the article about moving the margin around from one hand to the other and, and the business model, I had the feeling that I don't think that has changed much unfortunately <laughs> i feel like that's exactly what we're still doing if not more and hence is leading to a lot of the inequalities that we're seeing around the world as well yes. as the frustration right the that normal people feel and um, I, I wanted to refer back to um, a report recently that was published by oxfam that said the world's wealthiest 1,000 billionaires have more than recovered their wealth, whereas the rest of the people that are in poverty is going to take a decade to recover. So putting mm -hmm. that in stark contrast. Um, I want to go to, to an article that you published recently talking about purpose, principles, values. Mm. Um, it is something that resonates. It's something that resonates with um, a lot of the sentiments that's been going on. Um, a lot of the conversations we've been having. Can you talk a little bit about that? And um, you had a paradox, I remember, that you have published in that regards as well. Yeah, they, they, uh, yeah it's kind of like a mixture of two articles. The first one is um, about principles. And when we set out on life and when we set out on a business, we, we sit down and we tend to agree as a team what the principles of the business are going to be, how we're going to run, how we're going to operate. Um, what tends to happen is at some point we have to convert that through a, re a risk matrix to actually what we're going to do. And so it goes from the uh, why we're going to do it to what we're actually going to do. And what we do is defined by the resources and the resources are limited by what propensity of risk we're prepared to take. As we grow, um, what we find is, is increasingly we have to write rules that we can actually operate businesses by. And then we find that we can't write all the rules because the rules aren't very good. And we write rules to our risk matrix, not to our principles or to our purpose. 
And once we've got a risk matrix with a set of rules, it's much easier to go around that circle of refining our risk matrix and refining our rules to create more and more exceptions than it is to reflect back if the rules we've created actually align to our principles. And because we don't tend to reflect back to our principles, we end up in, an, in, a, in a business effectively with a stack of rules doing things we don't want to do, but they marry to a risk matrix, which effectively the capital is happy with, but is absolutely against what we set out to try and do in the first place. And, you know, a lot of ethical investing ends up with exactly this sort of role that they want to do well. But by the time you've been through the risk matrix and written the rules and the rules allow you to do certain things, you come back and you look at the principles and you go, I'm not actually doing what I set out to do. And you sit there and question why. And so what I was trying to do was link that when we create any new rule, how do we reflect it to the principles of the business? But that's quite hard. Um, and therefore, I wrote another article, which was called Peak Paradox. And it was a methodology, I suppose, a model, um, which tries to help us articulate those differences between what we would like to be doing and what we end up doing. Because what I what I propose is effectively they create conflicts in ourselves. And sometimes those conflicts are good and healthy and help us thrive. Sometimes they're stress and they don't help us to thrive. Sometimes we compromise our own position to what the company wants and we end up with again a, a tension which is not helpful for us or the company and sometimes the company creates products and services which are actually in tension to what they wanted to do in the market wants the, the purpose of the model is to say where's the delta not to say this is right or wrong just to expose it that we can have the conversation because i've got a base philosophy which says we need to make better decisions but to make better decisions We've got to look at the same thing through as many lenses as we can. And most of the lenses we look at today are kind of like very narrow. So we need some new models to allow us as we move forward to more sustainability and reuse to allow us to, to look at these, the same decisions we're making through different lenses so we can actually make probably better decisions. Let's talk about purpose for a minute, kind of taking that on. Um, before we came on, we were talking about Larry Fink's recent letter uh, to the industry. And, you know, purpose is interesting, right? Um, we want to find purpose in what we do and the lives that we lead. We want to, you know, sort of tie purpose to what we do. We've heard a lot of um, commitments from organizations to include more diverse talent, uh, to put money and training and, you know, more opportunities to people that don't normally have it. But it's this just value signaling, right? So, so when you think about purpose, is it, yes, when we become older and we become more privileged, um, we then want to tie back purpose so that maybe we feel a little bit less guilt. But it's kind of like finding religion on your deathbed. Um, you know, think about it. So, so how can we actually truly hold corporates more accountable uh, beyond just, you know, a million dollars here <clears throat> when your overall revenue sheet looks like a hundred million in a quarter, like an apple? Why doesn't Apple, you know, give 50 million, 100 million, 200 million or more to some of these things? You know, it's it's not a press release. So so what can we do? Uh, Bradley, it's, it, it's a great observation. And I suppose it, it, there's a bunch of language which we don't often sort of unpack. So one of the things that each individual has is a, is, um, a set of values. And those values translate any one moment into both your purpose and your principles. 
And the fundamental is your values change fairly regularly. And they change fairly regularly because your economic status changes regularly, your interactions with people changes regularly, the dilemmas that you face changes on a regular basis. So as you go through life, your values change. And therefore your purpose changes and your principles change. What we're always trying to do is find um, principles that are kind of like a little more stable than just people's variable variability in purpose and um, values. And that's why I stick to the word principles rather than values and purpose. Um, the trouble is most people don't understand what a principle is. And, it, and I'll give a classic example of GDPR wrote a pile of principles about what they do with data, which is Article 5. And if you actually look at the principle, it's not. They're a pile of kind of like rules. They're perceptions. They're not principles. So principles go back to, do you believe in transparency? Do you believe in equality? Do you believe in human rights? Do you believe they're the really big aspects of life, which are much more stable than just a person's perception or value? So back to your issue, you know, you, you kind of rightly highlight that people have a purpose, but we don't often know what that purpose is. And actually, reality is it changes throughout our lives. We kind of don't like that. We want this one overriding great ideology, which doesn't really exist. And the struggle I've got is that more often than not, uh, a purpose solves a problem. So I'll give an example, which is um, money actually has a purpose because it solves a problem. And the problems it solves is, is fungibility and time. Because uh, if uh, Theodora, Bradley and Tony are about to do a trade of eggs, cheese and um, uh, eggs, cheese and, and milk, uh, egg, cheese and, and, and wheat, as long as we meet together and we need each other, we can trade because they have an equal value. Unfortunately, the bigger that community comes, it didn't work. So we needed some asset change, fungibility, money, happy days. So, so money has a purpose which solves a real problem, time and fungibility. If we come into the modern age, we have this wonderful thing that everybody's resting their laurels on to create new businesses, which is data. But you sit there and fundamentally question, what is the purpose of data? Or does data have a purpose? And it kind of like opens up the same question we have for ourselves, that we want to have this purpose and we can't, can't accept that it doesn't. Yet we're all running around playing with data and saying it's really exciting without really understanding why. So I, I think we have a number of things that we haven't thought through yet or sufficiently. And that's kind of like, I suppose, why I try to write some of the things because I'm trying to explore this myself because I haven't got a clue either. You bring up an interesting point when we think about data and purpose and, and it, it brings to one of the questions that we've been grappling with, especially of late, right? If it is the question about who owns that data, who has ownership to my data, and why are we seeing everything that we're seeing today with the big tech companies, with social media, should they change their business model? If so, how should they do it? How do we make, can we even, hold them accountable and what is their role in here there was a there was an article that i read recently that they said and they talked about twitter and facebook and and all of these big technology giants and the reason why they are doing the quote unquote so-called censorship if you will is because of lack of 
governance and lack of policy in the part of the federal government in the United States. And it brings to question, okay, who are they to say who can say what and who mm. can't say what? But then on the flip side is if you don't do any of that, then you see the public discourse that we've been seeing. And then there's another theory that said, well, you know, if you start changing your business model and start charging people, then perhaps it will be a little bit different. Or there's another, yeah, it's another one that says, perhaps we should crowdsource on what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. There are a lot of different things that are being thrown to the wall. And I don't quite see any of them that will stick. What is your de developing thoughts about that? It's like a giant mess, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to pick up three things that come from it. The first one is uh, nation state. Um, so nation states have this, you know, somewhere between 5,000 and several thousand years of history. Um, the US has had less than some of the others. Um, but what they were able to do is pinch a lot of the other history of how to form good governance. Um, and we've, you know, humans have spent an awful long time to work out how we as nation states govern ourselves to make good decisions. And, you know, that involves one people have being accountable, saving responsibility, but then thirdly, lots and lots of committees, it's fairly slow. There's lots of evidence, there's lots of reporting and it goes through a process and it's beautiful and it kind of like does work, but it is incredibly inefficient. It is very slow. Uh, change happens at a snail's pace. But reality is it doesn't. It's just that we have this perception of we want to change today. So there's a nation state versus the company, the individual board of directors having no oversight, no control, no accountability. Um, you know, audit is completely rubbish. Um, we don't have uh, insight. We don't have transparency. So you have these two uh, juggernauts coming along, which ha almost have equality, exactly as you said, as the deplatformization of, of individuals and, and, and Donald Trump. It, it's incredible. Uh, yet we have one with enormous oversight and one with virtually no oversight. And so we, we, we don't have that debate about how to get better oversight when, as, as Bradley was saying earlier, you know, the profitability of Apple, actually the profitability of Apple is bigger than I think it's 183 countries in the world. Its turnover is bigger than I think 206 or something. I may have got the stat wrong. It's it's insane. It's absolutely insane. The next piece I think is, um, and I'll only do two, is the issue of regulation. Um, and the issue of regulation is one that we have created a capital market and we've created in our capital market a form of regulation to prevent abuse of power that occurs in, in markets. We get that. The only trouble is the regulation framework we've created makes a fundamental assuming assumption that the customer is exploited and the customer doesn't trust the providers. And the regulator is there to basically make the providers who are exploiting um, cust uh, their, their customers and don't in increase trust, that basically they don't break the law. What the regulator doesn't try and do is move the company's model because they don't have a mandate to, to, to this is to your very point, to move the model to you should, you should actually not exploit your customer and you should create more trust. So we have the wrong framework. Our frameworks are only set up to keep companies exactly in the same model with the same issues, not to move them to a better place. 
And I don't think we've solved that political problem that the regulator has any ability to move models and therefore we're not going to move anything. We're just going to continue the regulation. Connect a couple of these things. Um, as, as you may know, Tony, from this last conversation that you and Theo and had with Apollo on uh, Breaking Banks podcast, we have a book coming out. And uh, in Beyond Good, at the end of the book, we have our principle. And we lay that out in three or four pages. And the first one sort of struck me in this conversation. We said, we believe that what we do in life should create personal meaning for us. And it should somehow be reflective of our values and beliefs, which to your point, I think those shift a bit as we learn things in life. But as we develop deeper empathy for others, our work becomes more and more connected to improving the human condition. And that, I think, does go beyond privilege and goes beyond, you know, sort of our thinking about our lives as we get older. We finish this part of this principle um, saying that business models should reflect this as well. So when we think about business models and we think about what we just talked about in data and how it's important and critical uh, for businesses to make better decisions, learn and build uh, that knowledge database so that they could improve the lives, hopefully, of uh, its users and customers and members and what have you, to get insights out of, to use it. Um, these take intensive resources. And we're, we're really, really dominated in business by Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon and all these other large, large companies. How are new businesses and new business models and new values going to be unlocked when we think about sort of the power of the large organization and this disconnect between true purpose and true principles from what we really are trying to get more of in society. What are your thoughts? Yeah, super, super framing of a great question. Um, I think there's, there's two interesting bits that are worth picking up. The first one is this issue of empathy. And um, I'm reading at the moment Paul Bloom's book and Paul's um, tenant philosophy, and he's just picking up on what you said in your your um, uh, your your principles piece. Um, empathy focuses on the wrong thing, and the book is called against empathy. And so, you know, I, I've fairly much looked at empathy as a great thing, and I'm now reading a book which goes actually it's completely the wrong thing because you become incredibly narrowly focused and you forget to look wide. So it's not against compassion and it's not against love and it's not against all those things. Empathy gives you a particular focus and that focus is so narrow, it's not helpful to us. And it's, it's a really good book and it's worth looking up Paul Bloom and his, um, some of his video stuff because it's, it explains it well. But that takes us forward and um, how do we trans tra transform the business model? There was a UN piece of work and I don't know when it was quite published and apologies that I don't know it. And they did the, the scale of the unborn generations. So they went back 50,000 years and they went forward 50,000 years. Um, and then said, um, in the last 50,000 years, which are the dead people before us, there's a, there's a hundred billion people. Right now on the planet, there's about 8 billion people. And if you'd go forward 50,000 years, okay, this is now the unborn generations, okay, there will be about another six to seven billion people, oh, sorry, trillion people coming. So you've got 100 billion, 8 billion, 7 trillion in terms of scale. And it's, it's the piece that we've done. 
So if we take what we've done to the earth so far as our business models, we've dug up, cut down, wasted, moved and built. Okay, and that has formed effectively where we are 100 billion people. But unless we change entirely, because if we carry on doing what we're doing, which is dig up, cut down, waste, move and, and build, we, we basically it's unsustainable. So going forward, the question is, it's got to be reuse, reduce waste. I don't even think build and dig up um, are going to be part of it and move. So we've got to almost renovate and reuse. Now, if you say they're the keys to what we've got to do going forward to become sustainable, the business models fundamentally have to shift because our models are all built about dig up, cut down, waste, move and build. So I think it's that type of shift that we're getting towards that the models keep looking backwards to how they were done as opposed to looking forwards to the, you know, size of the people in the next 50,000 years, which is, you know, this 7 trillion people which will be born. Yeah, I, I remember reading not too long ago uh, in the last couple of years, something, I think the world without us or something like that. And it talked about mm -hmm. what happened within the first, you know, days and weeks uh, after we're gone. And um, I actually somehow find more, more purpose and sort of uh, solace in the fact that one day the planet will be better once we're gone. <laughs> but, but to, to think about, you know, uh, humanity as, as a data set, um, I think is really interesting. So, so just that, that simple idea to, uh, to, to find the use of our future and what we see in the past. It's, that's interesting, Tony. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I, I posted a piece up today because it, it suddenly occurred to me that actually everything we look at is in our past. So when we look out at the stars, that's all past. That all happened years and years and years ago. When we dig in the ground, everything we dig up it happened years and years and years ago. The only thing that is now is effectively us on the surface of the planet. And what you do now is the only thing that is now. So your choice now affects the future, nothing else. So nothing you can look at either into space or digging down will possibly create a future. You cannot see it. It's a, it and that's why I think we're really struggling with is that we somehow think that we can look somewhere and find something which will help us solve our current crisis as opposed to just accepting we are where we are and we've got to move forward. I haven't got a clue. And it's this, we are searching for how we, what question should we even be asking ourselves to make us think, as opposed to exactly what Bradley said, let's just repeat. I just, when you try to find meaning and when you try to find, um, you know, the, the way that your principles will actually make a dent in anything, you know, when we talk about, you know, in the, in the history of time, you know, that putting dent in the universe that they always attribute to jobs. And it's like, okay, so thousands of years from now, if humanity is still around, and that's a big if, because we're going at such a clip, uh, putting a dent in the universe means creating a device that we stumble across, you know, streets and almost get run over because we're looking down at a screen. I don't, I don't necessarily think, you know, like creating the iPhone or, or creating a computer in thousands of years will really matter in the same way that we think it will. So to your point, you know, there's a lot of things in the ground. There's a lot of things as we look up that seem meaningful to us, but it's in the past. So what are we doing today to actually make a difference in our, our personal lives and our communities and in the businesses that we, 
it's it's that point which is so if I dig in the ground, okay, in in, in several thousand years, I'm going to find an awful lot of iPhones, okay, and, and and a lot of Android phones and a lot of Hawaii phones and a lot, a lot of other manufacturers. I'm not picking on on Apple, okay, but a lot of phones, and it, and if I if I'm the anthropologist looking back, I'll go. So they dug up all the lithium. They dug up all of these rare earth metals. They put them into these devices and then we buried them. So how will I remember those companies in the future? You can't destroy the earth, guys. You didn't create some fantastic technology that you looked at, which everyone bumped into. No, no, no. You destroyed the earth. You, you own a responsibility that you physically destroyed the earth by propagating those devices. And that's, I think, that piece that, that Theodora was talking about. There's the mismatch of model. There is. So before we wrap up, let's go back to originally when we first started. You said something that I wrote down, actually. You said a lot of things. Um, I'm going to have to go play back on this and then reread some of your articles, which by the way, I just exceeded my allowance for medium. So now I have to figure out how to read the rest. Um, you said on becoming better ancestors. What is the legacy that each one of us should think about to leave behind? I'm interested in um, governance, massively, massively interested in the future of governance. Um, and this is corporate governance as opposed to any other form of governance. And the original thinking of governance is that we had a North Star. You, you knew where your North Star was. And what you did is you, you tried to get to your North Star. And that was great. Then what we worked out is the person who's holding the tiller on the boat getting to the North Star, if that person's not very good, we don't get to the North Star. So we looked at, okay, let's look at our purpose, find the North Star, then check the person who's holding the tiller getting it to the North Star. So governance expanded from just purpose to check the check the team. Then we found out that the vessels quite often sink on the road. So we sort of went, okay, so we've got a North Star, then we need somebody holding the tiller, then we've got to check the vessel, the thing, the business model we're going with. Then we got wider and said, ah, this is fantastic because we're going to form uh, proper governance now. So we check our North Star, we check the person holding the tiller, we check the vessel and we check um, the team around or the ecosystem around it and that's all been brilliant and it's kind of like got us to exactly where we are today it's the next question is in the next thousand years uh what are we doing because all those people are heading for their north stars what they've actually been doing is throwing over the back of their their ship trawler nets which have been going along the bottom and basically they've destroyed the earth for the next people so we've burnt the earth so the next person looking at their North Star goes, well, I can't get to my North Star because I can't feed the people because somebody else has taken all the food. So the question comes up is how we become better ancestors, that as we try to get to our North Stars, that we don't burn the earth on the process of doing it. And therefore we are able to make better decisions, which means that the people coming behind us, those extra you know, uh, trillions of people can actually also feed themselves they can actually get towards where they want to go as a North Star. So this raises a really interesting question that, have we got the right North Star? And these are things that we've really not wanted to question forever. We've always assumed they're the right things to be doing. So a right thing to do at the moment is make lots and lots of phones, as an example, okay? But if you wanna be a better ancestor, you kind of go, well, I've gotta make lots of phones, but I must also not destroy the earth. And that's the subtlety that we're 
just starting to introduce with this, the idea of how do we become better ancestors? And it's part of this, the ESG movement, but it's actually wider because it is about this decision-making body that we as humans have got to wait, wait, work out how we want to make that decision if the current people are being good ancestors. And we don't know at the moment. I don't think we know anyway. Well, if there's anyone who will continue on the search, I almost feel like Frodo looking for the ring. Um, that, that will be you. So um, thank you so much, Tony, for joining us today on One Vision. And thank you all for listening. And again, if you want to follow some of Tony's work, look for him on LinkedIn, on his um, blog, and as well as on Medium. Um, and the blog, Tony, if I got it right, is um, my digital footprint. Yes. Thank you so much. But doing that, we're all waiting for your book so we can read it and then celebrate because it sounds super exciting. And I am I am looking forward to it. It's on order. Thank March, you. March, is it March the 6th? It's March 3rd. Yes. We will all yes. celebrate um, second time around when we can all actually see each other yes. in, in person in real life. That would be wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. Great. Thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you all for listening in. We will talk to you next week. Thank you.